Nux, but bro, Nux. Good morning. Thank you for correcting us on our announcements. That was a test to see how awake you are, and you passed. Man, it's good to be with you guys this morning. Thanks for coming in on a summer day. We are super excited. Uh, As JR mentioned during communion, we are uh, going through the book of Acts. Uh, And this is, it's the first time that we've done a, a big book like this, chapter by chapter, in a while. So we're excited. But if you haven't been following along with us, no judges here, okay? If you haven't been following along with us, there's still time because we are just a third of the way through Acts today. So there are these yellow reading plans out in the lobby and on our website. So if you want to join us, join us. We would love to have you along with us. So today we're going to do Acts chapter 9. And I just got to tell you, um, this is one of my favorite chapters in the entire New Testament. Seriously. Um, I really enjoy this chapter. And you might ask me, why? All right, good, good. Uh, because if I could name this chapter something, I would name this chapter Hope for All of Us. And you're going to see why, if you haven't read it before, uh, you're going to see why, but the name of this chapter should be Hope for All of Us. So before we do that, I want to direct your attention to the screens. There are six individuals on this screen, and I'm going to introduce them to you. And as I introduce them to you, I want you to think, what are these people have in common. So let's start on the upper left-hand corner. We have Lex Luthor. We have the Wicked Witch of the West. We have Saddam Hussein. We have Osama bin Laden. We have Sauron. And we have Adolf Hitler. What do these people have in common? Funny accents, really? (laughs) I mean, you're not wrong. But yes... This side, of the group, this side of the room had it correct. Evil, villains, bad people. Yes, this group of folks, I would say, contributed significantly to pain and suffering in their respective contexts. Some of these are fictional, some of these are non-fictional, but you might call these people villains. There's one more person that I would propose that we would add to this list that I created. J.R. mentioned him last week in Acts chapter 8. His name is Saul of Tarsus. Remember what we read last week? For those of you that weren't here, let me, let me read this again. We, we first met this fella in Acts chapter 3, and it says this, but Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, remember what we read in chapter 7 and chapter 8. This is the same guy who stood right there and approved the stoning, rocks being thrown, Of Stephen. Stephen was the first martyr for his faith that we see in the New Testament, and Saul was the guy that stood there and said, Yes, do it. He was the first one that did that. And so, Acts chapter 8, verse 3, we saw it last week, we get this little picture of Saul, and then we move on. Until today. Let's pick it up and see what our our boy Saul's been up to. Acts 9, verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. And asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women. Incidentally, when he says the way, this is the first time that Christianity has been referred to as the way. That's what they're talking about. Uh, If they found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Look at that line. Still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. So 
Friends, what, what Saul was doing is he's starting in Jerusalem, right? But he's going from, from town to town and he's looking for Christians. They wouldn't be called Christians until later, but he's looking for disciples. And what he's doing is he's going he's gonna to imprison them in some cases and he's going to murder them in other cases. This is a bad, bad dude. If there was ever a villain from history, especially for our faith, if there was ever a villain from history, I would recommend Saul be put on this list. Let's just pause here for a second. Who's ready to imagine something? All right, good. Three people. That's awesome. (laughs) I want you to imagine for a second you're Superman, okay? And you're leading the Justice League. Now, I know, I know. Calm down. They're... That's a hot-button issue for some of you because some of you are going to tell me, well, Batman leads the Justice League, Superman doesn't lead it, and I just want to tell you that you're wrong. (laughs) Everybody knows that Superman leads... Seriously, Superman leads the Justice League, okay? So you're Superman. You're leading the Justice League, you're having a meeting, you're having a company meeting, and all of a sudden, Lex Luthor walks in, okay? Lex Luthor walks into your meeting, and by the way, you're Superman. How'd you let that happen? I mean, you should have heard him coming or something. Way to go. So anyway, Lex Luthor walks in. He looks you right in the eye, and he says, Soups, this is what happened. I am a changed man. I want to become part of the Justice League. And not only that, I want to write a playbook for the way the Justice League should operate. So he's looking you right in the eye and he says, I'm changed, I want to be part of the Justice League, and I want to write a playbook for the way the Justice League should operate. Now, I'm guessing if you're Superman, Lex Luthor is going to get thrown out before he finishes his last sentence, right? I mean, there is no way that Superman would shake hands with Lex Luthor. I mean, think about all the times that Lex tried to end the world. Think about all the times that Lex tried to kill Superman. There's no way that Superman's going to say, yeah, yeah, that, that sounds great. But what if? What if Lex really was changed? What if what Lex was saying was true and was completely legit? You see where I'm going with this? For those of you who have not heard the story of Acts chapter 9, this is basically what happens with Saul of Tarsus. Saul goes from imprisoning and murdering Christians to writing two-thirds of the New Testament. What? How does that happen? Seriously, seriously. Of these 27 books in our New Testament, 13, the 13 highlighted are those that Saul wrote. The 13 in yellow are ones that Saul of Tarsus wrote in our New Testament. How does that happen? Acts chapter 9 is how that happens. So let's get back to Saul. So Saul's been, he's been persecuting, murdering Christians in Jerusalem. And at this point in our history, scholars believe that the disciples were scattering because Stephen has just been murdered in cold blood and they're scattering. They're afraid for their life. And some of them went to Damascus. And somehow, it's unclear, but somehow Saul gets wind of this. And it's as if to say, I'm not going to let that happen. So Damascus is about 135 miles from, from, to Jerusalem. And Saul knows that he doesn't have the authority to go there. So this is what he does. He, and this is what we just read. He goes to the high priest and he says, I want legal authority to go get these disciples and bring them back to Jerusalem. 
So he starts walking to Damascus. Now, let me, let me add one more thing here. Um, Saul would be making this trip on foot. There's no cars, there's no e-bikes, there's none of that. He's making this trip on foot. And JR put this so well last week. You guys, Saul did not start out as a villain. Saul did not start out saying, I want to be a bad guy and I want to be known as this bad guy. Saul thought he was doing the right thing. Saul had grown up in the law. Saul was zealous for the law and he sees this group of people that is almost in his eyes making a mockery of this. And he says, you know what? This is going to stop. This is going to stop and I'm going to end this. So he thought he was doing the right thing. You know what Saul was? Saul was a leader with a blind spot. That's what he was. He didn't set out to be a villain, but here we are. So Acts chapter 9, verse 3. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Um, Saul mentions later in, verse, in chapter 22, this light was brighter than the midday sun. That's how bright this light was. Falling to the ground, Saul heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. Now, another interesting tidbit, though Saul was ultimately blinded by this light, later on in verse 27, he actually says that he saw the risen Christ in this moment. So verse six, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. So Saul's companions, they heard the voice, but they didn't see anybody. Um, I want to show you this in Acts 22. We're going to skip ahead a little bit. Um, Saul spoke of them seeing the light, but they didn't understand the voice. So in Acts 22, it says, Now those who were with me saw the light, but they didn't understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. This is important because what they've just done is they've confirmed this story happened. This wasn't in Saul's imagination. This has been confirmed now by another witness. This was, not, this was now an objective event. So verse 8. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Think about this for a second. I mean, Saul, here's this guy who has grown up in the law, and he sees this group of disciples that he just says, no, this, this isn't the way it is. And he's just full of this fury, and he's like, I'm going to imprison him. I'm going to murder him. He's walking on foot 135 miles, which is just a little farther than Missoula. And he says, I'm, I'm going to get these guys. And now, in, in a moment, he goes from that posture to being led by the hand, blind and helpless and being told what to do. I feel, like in the, I feel like in this story, there should be like this subtext in the Bible saying, like, meanwhile, back at the ranch. Because, like, Saul, he, he's, he's in the process of being changed, right? Like, we all, a lot of us know this story. He's in the process of being changed. But here's the thing. Nobody knew he's in the process of being changed back then. At that exact moment, nobody knew that. Saul of Tarsus knew that. His companions, however many there were, knew that. Nobody else knows that. So, meanwhile, back at the ranch, we're introduced to this little character in the New Testament. And his name is Ananias. This is not the same Ananias from chapter 5, different guy. Um, Now, we don't know much about him, but you guys, we're about to see courage on display. I want you to see this. Verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. 
And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. This is like one of the funniest verses in the whole New Testament, because we're going to see here in a second, Ananias knows well and good who Saul of Tarsus is. I mean, a lot of people know who this guy is. He just killed Stephen. Everybody knows who he is. And so the Lord said to him, okay, hey, Ananias, I want you to go and meet this guy named Saul of Tarsus, and behold, he is praying. I mean, can you imagine Ananias be like, no, 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 I, I, I understand who Saul is. I, he's doing what? Saul of Tarsus is doing what? He's, he's praying? Verse 12. It's not only that. Verse 12. He has seen in a vision a man named Ananias, you, come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, here we are. Lord, I've heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem and very perceptive of Ananias. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. This is interesting. We don't know how Ananias knew that because Saul got the authority from the the legal authority. We don't know how Ananias knew that. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. I just feel like every time I read this story, I want to read in between the text. Because you guys just think about this for a second. Everything that's happening between verse 16 and 17, there has to be so much going on in the mind of Ananias. I mean, he knows who Saul of Tarsus is. Everybody knows who this guy is. And now, in this vision... Ananias hears that he has to go, number one, see him in person. That's a big deal. But number two, he has to lay hands on him. I mean, if, if, I'm, if I'm Ananias in that moment, I know that this could likely be the last thing that I do on planet Earth. Because Ananias doesn't know that Saul is being changed. Nobody knows that yet. All Ananias knows is Saul of Tarsus is a bad dude, just killed his friend Stephen, and now I'm supposed to go lay hands on him. Like, if I'm Ananias, I'm, I'm really going to ask some people like, hey, I, I, hear, I heard this voice. I had some bad clams last night. I don't know if it's Jesus. Like, th- this is all very real. But the text doesn't say any of that. The text doesn't record any of that. Verse 17 says, so Ananias departed, and he entered the house. He went knowing that this could be the last act that he does on planet Earth. So he walks in this room, the street called Straight, which is basically like their main street back then, and he sees Saul of Tarsus. Probably said, oh, I pictured you taller. Never mind. Um, (laughs) He sees Saul of Tarsus, and now Saul is blind, and he's helpless. And look at this. I want you to see how he treats Saul. Laying his hands on him, he says, Brother Saul. Guys, Ananias not only does what he's being told to do, he lays hands on him and he calls him brother. You know that song, Amazing Grace? This is a picture in our New Testament of amazing grace, amazing love, amazing hospitality. Um, Previously in the New Testament, in John chapter 13, Jesus said, uh, by this 
all people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Ananias is always who I think of when I hear that verse. Because how many know it's, it's so easy to show love to those you agree with? It's really hard to show the love to those you don't. And this, it reminds me of a, of a story that I heard. There's this guy named uh, Brian Green. Anybody know who Brian Green is? Anybody heard that name? Okay, I didn't either. Um, he was a British evangelist. He was like a, a peer of Billy Graham. And he tells this story that after a service he had in, in the 1960s, he, he had this great service and he, he asked for people to stand up and say, what has this service meant to you? This little girl stands up. He says that she was probably eight or nine years old. And she says this, through this service, I have found Christ and he made me able to forgive the man who murdered my father. And Ananias calls Saul brother. This is an amazing way. Think about this. Saul of Tarsus, this was his first introduction to Christianity on the earth. That was his first introduction by somebody laying hands on him and not saying, well, Jesus told me to do this. I got to lay hands on you. This is stupid. No, no, no. Lays hands on him. And I always picture like right there on the shoulder. And he says, brother, brother Saul. The amazing way to greet somebody that you don't agree with. Laying his hands on him, he says, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose, and what Jared was just talking about, look at the immediacy. Then he rose, and he was baptized, right there and then. And taking food, he was strengthened. You guys, Saul had been changed just like that. Just like that. Now, I want to tell you something that... uh, some of you might say, you know, throw the tomatoes at him because this, this was news to me. For those of you guys who have heard this story before, I have always thought that this is where God changes Saul's name to Paul. This is where it happens. Um, for those of you who haven't heard of this before, this happens a few times in the, New Testament, or in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And what happens is God or Jesus, there's a, a symbolic thing that happens and he literally changes the name from one thing to another to symbolize what's going on. So the first time we saw it was when he changed Abram to Abraham and then he changed Abram's wife Sarai to Sarah. Uh, he changed Jacob's name to Israel. And then in the New Testament, Jesus changed Simon's name to Peter. And so we've seen that so far in the Bible. And I always thought that this is the moment when Saul becomes Paul. Because how many know when you go to church, you don't hear, well, this is the book of Galatians written by the apostle Saul. No, it's the apostle Paul. And I always thought this is when it is. But here's, this was news to me. Did you know that God did not actually change Saul's name to Paul? For the longest time, I thought that during Saul's conversion, this was it. But that's, that's not the case. God never changed Saul's name to Paul. And here's a few quick bullet points to support that. As we read Acts chapter 9, there's no mention anywhere, any translation anywhere, of Saul's conversion, of, of a name change happening with his conversion. Uh, in verse 17, which we just read, Ananias addresses him as Saul after his conversion. Uh, we're going to read in a few weeks, Acts chapter 13, that the Holy Spirit calls him Saul 
before he goes out on his first missionary trip. And then after his conversion, he's called Saul 11 more times. But I think the clincher is Acts chapter 13, verse 9, which we're going to read uh, later. It says, but Saul, who was also called Paul, was filled with the Holy Spirit. So if God didn't change his name, then why, why the name change? So it's, it's believed that a lot of this was not uncommon back then for folks to have two names. They had their Hebrew name, and then they had their Roman name. And Saul was no exception. Saul had his Hebrew name of Saul, but then he had a Roman name of Paul. And we don't, we don't know where those names came from. We, who knows? But it's, it's, uh, it's very believed that what was happening is after Acts chapter 13, verse 9, he's not referred to as Saul anymore. He's referred to as Paul from Acts chapter 13, 9 on. And it's believed the reason he did that is two things. A, everybody knew him as Saul of Tarsus. And so he knew that as he's going to go to this, basically this Gentile territory, into this Roman territory, he needed another name. So he started calling himself Paul. But isn't that interesting? That God never changed his name. And so I'm still going to refer to him as Saul because, like I said, he doesn't actually become Paul until Acts chapter 13. So Saul is now in Damascus. Okay, Remember, he started in Jerusalem, went to Damascus. He's still there. Ananias just laid hands on him. He got filled with the Holy Spirit, baptized. And now look what happens. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he's the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has not he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Don't miss the irony here of what's happening, because think about this. If you're Saul, you just had this amazing experience, right? But again, how many people know about this? Not a lot. So you're in Damascus, and you could have chosen to go anywhere and to talk about your faith. You could have chosen to go to like a little Roundup Montana. No offense to those that are from Roundup. Uh, You could have chosen to go there and talk about your faith, but Saul doesn't. Saul, I, I picture him having like this little inside pocket where he has this letter of authority from the Sanhedrin. He goes to the synagogues in which he has a letter with him to capture these people and take them back to Jerusalem. He goes to the actual synagogues and it's as if to say, listen, I met Jesus, I'm a changed man and you're gonna hear about it first. That had to be really hard, but that's where he decided to, that's where he decided to go. So verse 23, when many days had passed, The Jews plotted to kill him. Now, a couple notes here. Many days is a little bit of a misnomer. And that things get lost in translation when we take it into English. But when we look at the book of Galatians later in the New Testament, we see that many days was actually three years. He stayed in Damascus, you guys, for three years. Speaking in the synagogues, working with the disciples. This was not a flash in the pan. He was doing work in Damascus. And this bit about the Jews plotted to kill him, this is interesting because from now on in the book of Acts, when you, when you see this phrase, the Jews, what Luke is saying here is that is the group of people, that is the group of Jewish people that are opposing the gospel. And so now it's like as if the Jews have been cut and saying, okay, the Jews plotted to kill him, that's who's plotting to kill him. The group that's opposing the gospel. 
This is, this is great. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his, disi- his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. So he was in Jerusalem. He's in Damascus for how many years? Very good. Three years. Very good. And now he's going back to Jerusalem. This is Saul of Tarsus going back to Jerusalem. People know him there. You better believe people know him there. So this is what happens. (laughs) So I'm just going to give you a little hint. Imagine you're a disciple in Jerusalem. Verse 26. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. Hey guys, I want to join the Justice League. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. Duh. Like, oh, ye of little faith. No. No. It's, it, this isn't Jesus. This is Saul of Tarsus, who just killed their friend Stephen three years ago. Like, duh. You should be afraid at this point. But now he wants to join the Justice League. I want you to look at this. Verse 27. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. You guys, the Bible doesn't record why Barnabas did this. The only thing that we know is that Saul went to try to join the disciples and they were very afraid of him. And Barnabas, which means encourager, right? Comes and says, no. I believe what Saul is saying and I'm going to vouch for him. That's amazing to me. Verse 28, so what happened? So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers, the disciples, learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Now, if anybody's keeping track of his journey, he started in Jerusalem, went to Damascus for three years, came back to Jerusalem, which you got to know was hard because people know him. Now where's he going? He's going to Tarsus. Remember what his last name is? Saul of Tarsus? Oh my goodness, you guys. If he thought that Damascus in Jerusalem was hard, his name is literally where he's going. People have got to know him the best in Tarsus. He's got hard work ahead of him, but that's where he's being smuggled to was Tarsus. Verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. The church multiplied. Largely due to the courage of Ananias, who said yes to showing grace and love and hospitality to the man who could really have him killed. This is why I name this chapter hope for us all. Because when I, when I read the New Testament and I, I go through the Gospels and I, and I see the, the amazing things Jesus did while he was on the earth and his amazing sacrifice, we sang about it this morning. I mean, that's, that's all amazing, right? I mean, it is. But I, I, mean, I mean, I don't want to say this too irreverently, but at the end of the day, that's, he's Jesus. He's the son of God. I mean, it's great, but he's still Jesus. And then I read the book of Acts. And I read about this guy who was, who was throwing Christians in jail and was, was murdering them. You guys, God could have chosen to end Saul's life like that. 
We've seen it before in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. He could have opened up ground again, swallowed him whole, done. Saul is done. He could have chosen to do that, but he didn't. He didn't do that. For whatever reason, he looked at Saul, he met him on the road to Damascus, and in a second, he radically changed his life. And because of that moment, Saul became Paul and did so much of the work of our early church. And that gives me incredible hope. So, what do you, what do, you do with this story? I mean, honestly, there, there's so many application points. But I, I think the biggest one for me today is this, is the ability for God to use anyone, regardless of their past, well, really, regardless of their present. Because I, I think sometimes that we forget that, honestly. I think sometimes we, we take that for granted. But as, as, as we think about ourselves, we know what's in our past. And I mean, honestly, we know what's in our present. We know what maybe we thought about or said or did this morning. We know it all, right? And we think, well, there's no way that I could have a relationship with Jesus because of X, because of what I've done, or because of what I'm doing. There's no way. And if I could offer you guys any encouragement today, as, as you look in the mirror, and as you have those thoughts, I want you to remember Saul's story. And I have some really good news for you. The Bible is full of stories like that. The Bible is full of stories like that. You want some even better news? This room is full of stories like that. This room has stories that I know of people with myself included, with some checkered pasts and God doing some pretty great things in their life to make this world a better place. As cheesy as this sounds, I want to tell you this today. No matter what your past or your present is, it does not disqualify you from a future with Jesus. And one more thing. This is a little harder. In addition to yourself, when you look at others, and there are those others that don't talk like you, or don't look like you, or don't behave like you, it's easy for the little judges to come in, and it's easy for the assumptions to come in. But I want you to remember the story of Ananias in Acts, because... Honestly, if it wasn't for Ananias, who knows what would happen to Saul. But Ananias was obedient to God, right? He showed grace. He showed love. He showed hospitality to somebody that wasn't like him. Ananias was afraid of Saul as he should have been. But he still went. He still called him brother. And that act was a catalyst for Saul doing so much of the work in the early church. You know, I'm reminded this week that it's called the comfort zone for a reason. It's where we are comfortable. But as I thought about all the stories that I know of our faith and all the stories that I know of people in our faith, I can't think of any story that happened while you're in the comfort zone. Ananias extended love, extended compassion, expanded grace to him. And that one decision literally change the world. And so as you, as you look on people that you might be afraid of or that you don't know their whole story, let's change the bracelet. 
What would Ananias do? Right? Would he extend love? Would he extend grace? Would he extend compassion? Because the impact of that decision, you guys, changed the world. So, as we close today, I want you to remember this. That God, he can use anybody. He can use me. And he can use you. And he can darn sure use those we least expect. Let me pray for you. Lord, thank you so much, God, that you are no respecter of persons that way, Lord. We bring all our stuff to you, and you can use it, Father. And God, I just pray, Lord, that um, as we go from here, Lord, that we would be salt, we would be light, just like your New Testament says, Father, that we could make a difference in Helena, Montana, the United States, and planet Earth, Father. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for us getting to learn through acts with you, Father. And I just pray a blessing on those that are here and those that are listening online, Father. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.